And I had a lot of time on my hands and a technical background, and I was still failing to do this. Um, I found it intellectually super interesting, um, just like the the movement towards home electrification, um, this kind of, I would say once in a century or once in 150 year change that's happening with our, our country's electric grid. Um, that's kind of happening in the background. People don't really realize what's happening. Um, and so I just was like, all right, this, there's something here, there for design and improved consumer homeowner experience and um, paired up with one of the my partners at Casper. Um, and then we eventually paired up with a third person who actually came from the energy industry and um, and started to formulate a business in the in the kind of residential clean energy space. And that's that's how we ended up forming this new business. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. For sure. Thanks for having me. My dad was a pilot in the Air Force, and so I was born... Um, in Alaska. And a month later, we moved to DC. And then every probably one to four years for the rest of my life, we moved. So lived in Germany twice, lived in northern Japan, lived in Rhode Island, lived in Hawaii. And so I think the experience, obviously, like interacting with tons of different cultures, growing up in the military, which is a very mission-driven kind of cohesive organization, had a lot of impact for me, just how I like view myself in the world and how I view the world and kind of, this sounds kind of weird. We can get into it later, but like how I've kind of spent my time for the last 20 years, 25 years since college. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, I always know there's a lot of, I guess they call them uh, army brats or just in terms of uh, moving around and, and for you, was that, hard as a kid though at all just you know having to make new friends and different cultures it probably seems like it would be hard but whenever you move to a new place you were amongst the military community and so everybody was having the same experience i think my sophomore year of high school we had moved from japan to germany and one third of my sophomore class was was new that year unlike at American public school, there might be two new kids or three new kids, lifetime friendships amongst the kids. Um, here, it was just the case that like there was so much turnover. It was, I would say it was like fairly easy to make friends. I'd also say I was like painfully shy as a kid. <laughs> so, um, and very close, I think probably very close to my family relative to an average kid because they were the constant in my life, whereas the friends were changing every, every few years. You know, you mentioned that and being really shy and it's, it's, it's really difficult. Obviously you see it in today's world. I was just talking to friends and there's, I mean, not shyness is one thing, but you know, there's a lot of mental health issues and it's just so, so difficult. And, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting because growing up and moving around like that, do you find anything from that shyness to having the support of your family 
that really helped you to who you've become today and, and the success you've had? Yeah, I think think about that. I think one of the things when you have to kind of pick up your life every one to three years and start in a new place, I think you do develop some resilience. So like, all right, it's new, but you'll figure it out. You'll go with your friends. You'll join a sports team. You'll find some activities. Um, I mean, there were times where we lived in hotels for months at a time where we were waiting for housing to come through. And so I think that's like a, a big part of the experience of my childhood, which has shaped me now, which is that it doesn't really matter what situation you're put in and it could be easy. It could be difficult. You'll always kind of find your way through it. And I, I think as a entrepreneur or as a designer, which is kind of my professional background, you're always tackling the unknown. Um, and so I'm comfortable with the, the unknown and have confidence and, and you build that confidence over time professionally as well, but just through life that you'll figure it out and you can't get too stressed about where you are right now. Um, and that things will, will play out the way they play out and you, you'll do your best and, and generally you'll end up in a good spot. Yeah. I mean, you were a designer for a long period of time, just, you know, and, and, and I'm sure still are, but, but you did that. Was there a time in childhood or, or as you got older, where you really knew you wanted to be a designer? No, I would say, I think growing up the way I grew up, you're kind of have a very narrow exposure to potential careers and professions. Um, I was, I don't, maybe half of my high school joined the military. It's, it's you don't get exposed to that much. Um, I had come back, I would say I, I grew up always tinkering. I think my parents' second favorite hobby uh, behind like outdoors activities was house projects. My my mom's grand, my grandfather, my mom's side worked in a factory and was hands-on. There was always people tinkering, working on cars. So I, I grew up around that. I didn't actually know that design was a profession. It never struck me until I was in grad school. Actually, I was in grad school studying. The first time I went to graduate school was for a PhD in geology. And then I met somebody who was in the product design program at Stanford. And they were telling me what they did. And it was like mind-blowing that all right, some person actually decided on your coffee cup what that shape would be and what the handle would be and what the radii would be. And it was super exciting for me because I had an undergraduate. I had ended up getting a, my bachelor's in civil engineering. And the reason I started in chemical engineering, moved to civil because I took one freshman class um, called the art of engineering taught by a professor, David Billington. And he was essentially looking at the great works of engineering and architecture and talking about how physics and mechanics and engineering marry with you know, art and aesthetics. And that, that like blew my mind. And then when I, I, I didn't connect the dots that also happened with products and product design. And so that just felt very natural. And once I learned about it, I was like, that's what I want to go do. And then I applied and eventually went back to graduate school for product design, which was a joint program between engineering and art at Stanford. And that's kind of where I've been for the last 20 years of my career. And coming out and, and working after uh, going to graduate school for design, what was your early career like in terms of what you did and what you learned and, and that kind of maybe has shaped you towards eventually finding Casper and, and obviously today with uh, Haven Energy. 
Yeah, my first job out of graduate school was with IDEO, the fairly large design consulting firm. And my, my very first project was designing a trash can for OXO, the kind of kitchen appliance company. And so my, my very first couple of years there was very engineering product design intensive. A lot of that work moved to China over time. And so IDEO changed and I changed with IDEO. So the work started to become more strategic. Um, you know, there was a shift towards more digital design work, um, storytelling, which became really important. Um, and, and, you know, it's important for anybody in any job is like, how do you craft a story and tell a story and bring people along on that journey and convince them, you know, to change a behavior or do something new or follow you or join you, whatever it is. Um, and so I think I was like the two, two biggest things I got out of my time at IDEO were learning how to tell stories and craft stories and to the earlier discussion, just confidence. You do dozens and dozens of projects over that time. And so you have confidence that no matter what the brief is, you'll figure something out. Um, as long as you go and do the research, get inspiration, go out into the field, talk to users, talk to suppliers, um, and, and really understand how, how products or services are, are, are being used so that you can design a better one. Yeah. And, you know, you stayed at IDEO for a while, uh, I think, uh, about 10 years or yeah, for 10 years. And, and then you tell us what'd you do next? Cause it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. And, the tail end of my time at IDEO, I, I got really interested in IDEO. I started to dabble in work in international development and IDEO has since formed a nonprofit called IDEO.org. But at the time I was there, it didn't exist. And so really kind of pro bono with some support from the company. A few of us would do work with generally with international nonprofits or aid agencies. And I, I enjoyed it well enough that at some point, one of the directors of a, a nonprofit called IDE in Cambodia, he emailed me and said, Hey, we would love to like, we have this large project on uh, rural sanitation. Do you know anybody that kind of knows what you guys know how to do would be interested in coming here? And I was just at a time in my life that I actually said, oh, maybe I would want to come. And so I talked to my boss. IDEO is very flexible employer. They gave me a sabbatical. And I went um, for the first time for a six-month stint and lived in Phnom Penh and worked on a rural sanitation marketing project. And so the very quick background is a lot of the world has poor sanitation, whether, um, and it, it results in kind of waterborne illnesses. So either they don't, they don't have proper toilets. They don't have hand washing their drinking waters, which contaminates the drinking water. And then they don't have drinking water filtration. So that kind of bucket of three things, clean water, hand hygiene, and improved sanitation, the, the development community, and kind of, if you go international to developing countries, the ministries of health, it's, it's a really big issue. And so I spent a couple of years working on projects with Gates Foundation, World Bank, USAID, equivalent kind of donors, and then their partner, international NGOs and local NGOs, looking at how to apply design, design thinking, uh, market development, supply chain development in projects to improve rural sanitation, rural hand hygiene, um, drinking water filtration to get products. A lot of these can be solved with very simple products, get them out into the market, 
And so did work in a couple of countries in Southeast Asia, East Africa, and West Africa. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, I would say I probably spent nine, nine months out of every year on the road, traveling to different countries um, and living there and, and working with mostly with local staff who really knew the culture and the country and the people. Well, you grew up and and you obviously were traveling the world, your father being in the air force and, and saw a lot of different places, but can you recall it must've been different or what that feeling was when you first really started on the initiative you're talking about and, and the poverty levels. And do you remember what struck you most? Yeah, it's, it's probably, it's like a positive thing that struck me. I, I had traveled a lot as a kid, so I'd seen, I think that are shocking if you haven't traveled to see extreme poverty, um, just like people who are malnourished or starving or just like living conditions are very simple. This maybe sounds like cliche, but what struck me was just like how content some people seemed. Obviously not everyone, but as opposed to like American culture where people get very separated from their families and distributed around the country. And we chase work opportunities uh, at the expense of family and personal relationships. You would see these like multi-generational families living next to each other and being involved in lives and great grandparents watching and grandkids. And I'm probably, I probably over, would overly romanticize it. I'm sure there's some downsides to it, but that, just was really striking to me because it was so different than my childhood or most of my friends' experiences that like, yeah, objectively, economically, these people are struggling, but they have this other thing that we generally have, have selected not to have in exchange for economic well-being. Yeah, it, it really is amazing. I, I've never had the experience to see that, but knowing families or seeing families that have those bonds of multi-generational people living together or family living together, you know, in one household and the beauty of that and how incredible that that is kind of the money part. Obviously, it's a difference when, you know, you're talking about extreme poverty and being poor, but still to me, I love how you brought that up because to me, that's that part at least is such a a blessing and talk to me because you're on this journey, incredibly doing these amazing things around the world. And then you go out and you co-found a company called Casper, which we know in terms of mattresses that explodes and How'd you go from there to there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, that, the mechanics of it was while I was doing this work internationally, I became friends with um, another guy who ended up one of the co-founders at Casper as well. And a couple of years later, he had reached out to me because he and two other, two of the other co-founders had started to like incubate the idea of Casper. And I... I was the only one they knew who knew anything about physical products and product design. So that's the mechanics of it. The like background is my time at IDEO and obviously the time doing all the work in, in sanitation and clean water. I, I've always been drawn to what I would call kind of basic human needs. So if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, you know, maybe as a product designer at the very top, you might have stuff around fashion and self-expression at the very bottom. It's, 
are you healthy? Do you have access to clean water? Like, are, are you safe? And I've just always gravitated to the bottom of that pyramid, whether it's medical devices and pharmaceutical injectors and stuff like that. I did at IDEO or the work I did overseas. And so candidly, I mean, in my time at IDEO, I worked for the sleep and mattress industry and I, I didn't find it particularly interesting. And so I would, I went into it kind of cautious to be like, I really like this guy. I was like, it'd be fun to work with them. I'd been spending so much time internationally that I, and given the, like the realization I just talked about, I was like, I'm growing apart from my friends and family. So I want to spend more time in the U S and it felt like something to do candidly while I figured out what I wanted to do next. But it actually became much more interesting. I would say at least for a couple of years there, we had started to look at like, how do you improve sleep? And like a mattress can do some things, but we, we had very early on, I think within the first 12 or 16 months of starting the business, we had done a much more conceptual project internally about how can technology help improve sleep and really created a framework about how the five senses and sight and sound and touch, you know, taste and touch can improve sleep. And we had a long roadmap of products and we got one, two of them out the door around lighting and sleep. And then the rest, we ended up having to cancel later in the, in the business cycle. And there were a lot of learnings for me there around like, how much can you actually accomplish within a single business? And, and so the business now today really is, I'm no longer involved in it, but it really is focused on mattress retail, pillow retail, um, really kind of core sleep products. And so there was a window there where it was like very much aligned with my personal interests or like in the U.S., you know, most of us have most of our, our basic human needs met, but sleep for various reasons and poor sleep is a chronic condition. And so the opportunity to spend some years thinking and working on that was actually very interesting for a while at some, you know, at some point, the realities of business and profitability and all of that stuff got in the way of maybe the more interesting part of it for me. For other people, that part is super interesting for me, maybe a little bit less. And so I ended up I was there from about 20, late 2013 through 2021. Um, and so it was a long run to help build the business. I learned a ton, built some really good relationships. And um, obviously, like, you know, we built a brand that I've in a company that will last a long time, I believe. And the products we do provide are, are great products. Or, and I think they'll help people sleep, sleep well. And so I think we got, we accomplished a lot, not as much as maybe we hoped, but we did accomplish a lot. Certainly did from my vantage point. And what was that like? Because you're one of the co-founders and your specialty is product design. And looking at it now, it seems like there, there's several products going through, but the mattress, right? And sleep, because it is so important. And we spend so much of our lives. I don't, I don't, you probably know the stats, like sleeping or in bed. What was that like for you? Were you really the one focused on kind of creating the mattress, the the differences, the changes that was going to really build Casper? Yeah, for sure. So for my, for my whole time there, I was responsible for the all of the physical products that we built. So in the very beginning, it was just me in the factories and doing testing. Over time, we built a team and we got more sophisticated. So we had an ergonomist and ergonomics lab and we did human subject testing. And it got very, you know, we were testing 
biomechanics and sweating and like it got like we got we learned we got very smart about how to design a mattress um and so yeah that and, and we applied it to other things you know the pillows we looked at neck ergonomics and and uh for any kind of cut we, we made a duvet which actually like helped wick moisture away and so we would measure humidity under the covers and we designed a duvet that actually was like it kept it the least humid possible underneath the covers just through like passive wicking away um, and so we we were very we had a very technical approach to how we design the products, research them, um, and then tried to st- story tell them into the market. I think maybe uh, it didn't always like where we m- maybe missed sometimes was in like our consumers looking or do they really appreciate those things uh, at point of purchase when they're considering your option, which might cost fifty dollars more because you put in merino wool to wick moisture versus somebody who had it. That's probably like one of the areas where if we were going to put that effort to design, we need to make sure that the market valued it or that we convinced them to value it. And that's probably like for some of the things we designed, certainly some of the breakdown in that process. But for the most part, I think we had like very positive customer feedback on the products we did launch. Um, And I think that helps that business really grew through referrals and people sharing. And I don't think we, you know, there's many reasons that happened. One of the reasons was that people enjoyed the products and, we're happy to tell people about that. And that, that was key to the growth of the business. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Because that's your area of responsibility, right? And the product and creating the product. And I've interviewed a lot of people on this show and sometimes it's more marketing. Sometimes it's straight up luck. Sometimes it's an invest, you know, how's that make you feel just knowing that Casper really, and even I know just from referrals and people telling me, really grew on, like you said, the product itself. How does that make you feel as someone who that was your responsibility? That's what you love doing. Obviously, it's, I mean, if your profession and job is design and product development and you find something that people really love, and I think there's, by now, Casper's sold a million, two million, three million matches to have like that level of success is great. I, I would say it's like not as like emotional fulfilling as you, as one might think, like the numbers are less emotional. I can't believe what's like more emotional is like one-on-one interactions. If you get like one person writes you a note on LinkedIn or in one customer interview, that kind of is for whatever reason, at least for me, yeah. tends to be like an order of magnitude more fulfilling than a stat that you sold 500,000 mattresses this year. Um, and, and I think like that business, <laughs> you're, you're being very flattering. We did a lot of things right. Um, and I think it was like the product was right. In the beginning, we, we offered just one product, which if the consumer problem is like trying to figure out like, there's too many choices. I don't shop for this product that often. So there were some strategic decisions, which made the business easy to operate when you only have one product and also was solving a key consumer pain point. We were the first to do like a long trial. Now it's, it's you know, very standard of the industry. So it relieved the anxiety of shopping for something online that people thought they needed to test in a store. And so we we had all that going for us. There were some tailwinds just in the kind of macro social culture. Heck, entrepreneurship uh, was really celebrated at that time. I think like 
Mark Zuckerberg had dinner with Obama in the White House. Like, can you imagine that happening right now? Like, there were a lot of t- tailwinds that we, some of it we were aware of, some of it we weren't really aware of until we looked back in hindsight that the business benefited from. And we just, you know, to your point, like some of it's skill, some of it's intention and some of it's luck. And I think we kind of had a, a bit of all of that rolled up. And I would guess most, you would know better than me because you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and successful people. Like I would guess almost everybody needs all of those to actually have the success that they've had. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting to, I've always noticed, I find the the one thing which I'm sure you dealt with a lot was the persistence and something didn't work or your product wasn't exactly right. Not just stopping, but continuing pulling yourself off the mat. But yeah, when it comes down to success, it really is interesting how you have to have that component, but there have to be other things that align. And it's funny speaking to some people who had these incredible ideas that were just 15 years ahead of their time, right? Like I forgot who I was talking to uh, recently, but basically the person had Netflix, you know, and, but it was even before like Netflix and, and it, and it is interesting to see and, and, and how things turn out. And for you, it seems like at your core, you know, you're, you're mission-based and you want to do good. And I'm sure that formulated from growing up and seeing the world and and some of those experiences you shared. But tell me about leaving Casper and getting into clean energy and and the reason behind it and and why you wanted to do that. Yeah, I had, um, I left Casper really just felt like my time was done there and the business was transitioning. And so, and it was, fairly early in COVID. And so life for everybody was different and changing. And I had had twin, I had already had had a son in 2017 and twin daughters a month before COVID. So like, there's just a lot of change in my life. And so I, I left Casper. I'd taken some time off earlier in my career when I was at IDEO, I had done some work with General Electric on batteries. Uh, they were looking at using batteries for a really specific application for commercial customers to reduce their electric bill and reduce the strain on the electric grid. Um, and so that was my first kind of exposure to like the energy infrastructure of the country. I'd also done some work with on consumer facing in like 20, 2009, 2010. The product category doesn't really exist anymore, but there used to be these like digital home energy monitors where you would look at your energy usage and the point was to like try to drive down generally environmentally motivated customers or some kind of economically motivated customers that wanted to reduce their bills, reduce their footprint, and and it would inform them of their usage patterns and suggest ways to change behavior. So I I had touched on it then. After I left Casper, I spent spent about a year, actually. We we had moved from the Bay Area to a small town in Wyoming for my wife's job and purchased a 110-year-old house that was in what is a very cold winter climate, a house that was totally uninsulated. If you open a wall, yeah. there's nothing inside. And we have, uh, it's still in the basement, but the the boiler in the house was from about 1925. Awesome. Um, and so I was like, all right, this is, it's an uncomfortable house to live in. Um, it's a cool house, but uncomfortable because it's, you know, just 
bleeds heat. It's drafty. And so I kind of spent really as like therapy post Casper, like a, I'm going to improve the building envelope, seal this house up, add insulation. Let's look at moving from a gas boiler to a heat pump. We purchased an EV. We have a fair amount of power outages just because of where we live and it's a super windy environment. So I was looking at getting battery back up for the home and solar. And so I started diving into that and just found it to be like horrifically complex as a homeowner to navigate. What heat pump should I get? Do I want an AC coupled battery or a DC coupled battery? How am I going to find somebody to install this? And I had a lot of time on my hands and a technical background, and I was still failing to do this. I found it intellectually super interesting, just like the movement towards home electrification, this kind of, I would say, once in a century or once in 150 year change that's happening with our our country's electric grid. That's kind of happening in the background. People don't really realize what's happening. And so I just was like, all right, this, there's something here, there for design and improved consumer homeowner experience and paired up with one of the, my partners at Casper. Um, and then we eventually paired up with a third person who actually came from the energy industry and started to formulate a business in the, in the kind of residential clean energy space. And that's, that's how we ended up forming this new business, which we launched about two months ago called Haven Energy, um, which is focused on in the short term, in the near term, very much focused on deploying residential batteries into, into homes. And we can talk more about it, but it, it's, uh, there's a, a, a need for homeowners to have it. There's a need for the electric kid to have it. Um, and it, and energy storage will become a much bigger part of our electric infrastructure over the next 20, 30 years. And so we're, we're on the very early part of that curve. I want to talk about that. And I want to talk more about that. I want you to tell us, you had mentioned what's going on with the energy grid and changes in 150 years we haven't seen for a, a neophyte like myself in, in almost every category. Tell me, what is it that is changing and why is Haven involved now? Yeah, on the highest level, the energy grid we have today in the U.S. is built around, for the most part, centralized fossil fuel-based generation. So you've got a big coal plant or a big gas plant that can produce megawatts of, of electricity, just huge facilities you also have some nuclear plants in there and some hydro plants, but that's like the historic infrastructure. And then you have, and we've all seen in these giant trends, like high voltage, super high voltage transmission towers, they get to your neighborhood or town, they step down in this big substation we've all seen behind barbed wire, and they get stepped down to a lower voltage and then goes on the wooden poles that we see through our neighborhoods. Some neighborhoods have them underground and that's so that's a transmission to distribution. So that's what we have today. Obviously, with climate change and kind of nuclear being, for the most part, out of favor, hard to build new dams. And so those core centralized generation facilities just aren't really being built or they're not as economical anymore. And what's replacing them are generally solar, centralized solar, although it's never as centralized. Like a solar, you need a lot more solar plants to produce like what one coal plant would do. So it's it's yes, it's centralized, but not to the same degree. You've got wind farms, and then you've got dis- really distributed generation. So you have a lot, particularly in like in the west and southwest, 
uh, where they have really good solar resources. You've got a lot of rooftop solar on commercial buildings and residential buildings. And so there's a couple of transitions. One is from centralized to decentralized. You have a transition from what is, uh, from a like environmental standpoint, not good, but from an energy generation standpoint, very good. Like a coal and gas plant are, are they call fir- like a firm resource. I can count on that thing to produce day in, day out. If I need a little bit of more, I add a little bit more coal. I put a little bit more gas in. Solar and wind aren't like that. There's seasonal variation. There's day-to-day variation. There's minute-to-minute variation. And so we have now we have volatility in electric supply, where we used to have real pretty good stability in electric supply. And so, and the, I guess the, probably the last two things, one, I mentioned kind of climate change. One of the impacts of that is, is more severe weather. Um, I think you're in New York. I'm sure you've got bad air quality. <laughs> it was not been a good <laughs> few days. I'll tell you that. It's, yeah, yeah. It, it was, I honestly, I was here for 9-11 and, and downtown and the smell and what we've gotten with these wildfires and the air pushing into into uh, New York has it reminded me, unfortunately, of of that. It, it was it was so wild. It was yeah, totally crazy. Like I, I've never seen a sky like that. It's crazy. So that all of that impacts electric reliability. So in California, because of wildfire risk, the utilities are electively shutting off electricity frequently. You've obviously have these larger storm events, rain events, wind events, all that is on the uptick. And so there's kind of more chaos in the electric supply because of all that. And those wooden poles I mentioned that like distribution infrastructure is old. I mean, it was built 50, 60 years ago with a 50 year service life and it's going to cost a fortune to replace it. And so if you, you no longer need that to the degree we have it, if you have, you know, if you've got solar on your roof and a battery and you're plugged into your neighbor who's got solar and battery and there's a community storage, you start to look at the electric grid starts to get a lot more decentralized. It's a, there's a lot more renewables in it. And for and, and that'll really change like how we think about consuming and generating electricity. Homeowners will move from being pure consumers to producer consumers. They'll have a lot more say in the prices they pay and, and their position in the market. And there are more, if you, I think the probably most advanced market for this is in Australia and the U.S. is, is years behind. In the U.S., the most advanced market is Hawaii, really driven by their like really high energy costs. They have to, in, they've had to import oil for running their their plants, their, their centralized power plants. And so it's really unclear right now how it all shakes out, but it is changing. Um, and you're starting to see some of the impacts. If you don't get ahead of it, you start to get some of this volatility and outages like we're seeing in Texas and California, which is the regulators and utility providers and participants just need to get ahead of the curve so that we can get more stable electric supply. And they are just through policy and funding and whatnot. So it'll improve in the next decade or decade or so. Yeah, just a couple of questions I want to ask before I let you go. If you look at Haven Energy and the next, I'll, I'll put a long five, 10 years, because as you said, this is kind of these once in a lifetime, maybe once in every two lifetime changes that we're seeing now, especially with energy. Where do you see what? What's your vision and hope for the company? Yeah, I would say it's two parallel paths. One is 
focused on home electrification. Um, so we've started with batteries. We have been doing some solar installs as well. Uh, the two go well together. Um, but generally, most homes should, for the sake of the environment or for somebody's pocketbook, and in most cases, just actually a better product experience, add home batteries, add solar, add a heat pump, add a heat pump hot water heater, put in a smart thermostat. Like there's add an induction stove. There's like five or six things that if you look at a home today versus a home in 30 years will be very different. And so I think helping homeowners navigate the process of adding these appliances and getting them installed and getting them set up correctly. It will be one focus of the business. The second focus of the business gets to a comment I made earlier around a homeowner as a kind of a producer, consumer. Now that I have these electrified appliances, they provide value to the electric grid, uh, whether it's offloading the demand, the household demand from the electric grid, feeding energy back to the electric grid. There's some more nuanced things around helping stabilize voltage levels and frequency levels. And a homeowner should get paid for those things. It's really hard for the quote-unquote grid to interact with the individual homeowner. And so there's this concept of a virtual power plant where, say, a thousand homes in Mm -hmm. Brooklyn are aggregated together and the grid operator sees that as one entity, but it's really a thousand entities. And that is another thing our business does is aggregate these electrified assets many of which sit idle most of the time if you're not really participating in a virtual power plant and help provide services to the grid in exchange for compensation to the homeowner. And so the the lifetime cost of ownership can be much lower than it would with a traditional appliance because we can actually be using that appliance in the background when you're not otherwise using it to provide services to the grid. And we don't anticipate that like homeowners are going to care all that much about it. I think what they would care about is getting a $50 check every month from us via their utility because we were doing something with their appliances in the background. And so I think people will have to get accustomed to the idea that generally that the extra income you can provide, you can gain from an appliance that we would otherwise not be using would be appealing to the vast majority of people. And so those are the two main things, getting the appliances out there and then making the most of them is really where the business is focused. Obviously, like new businesses have to have a really narrow focus to get out the door. And so we are focused on batteries and batteries in virtual power plants. But we do we do think that we will expand beyond that over time. Well, I can't wait to the day I stop getting bills from Con Ed here in uh, New York and start getting checks from Haven Energy. So uh, I'm definitely <laughs> counting on you, Jeff. I can't wait. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today. It's been Great talking to you. I really enjoyed just in terms of your background and and as I said before, the good natured person you seem to be and and out there and from what you did in it originally uh, in some of these places where there was extreme poverty to what you're doing today, really to do your share in 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 helping the planet. To me, that's just uh, something to be proud about. So I I really do appreciate everything you're doing. And um, I do appreciate you coming on How Success Happens. Yeah, yeah. thank you for the kind words. And uh, thanks for having me on. I I appreciate the chance to to tell tell my story and, and really enjoy talking to you today. Yeah, thanks. 
And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.